0: Chapter 1 of the Afghan Wars 1839 to 1842 and 1878 to 1880 Part 1 The First Afghan War This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Recording by Philip Griffiths The Afghan Wars 1839 to 1842 and eighteen seventy eight to eighteen eighty part one the first afghan war by archibald forbes i preliminary since it was the british complications with persia which mainly furnished what pretext there was for the invasion of afghanistan by an anglo-indian army in eighteen thirty nine some brief recital is necessary of the relations between great britain and persia prior to that aggression by a treaty concluded between england and persia in eighteen fourteen the former state bound itself in case of invasion of persia by any european nation to aid the shah either with troops from india or by the payment of an annual subsidy in support of his war expenses it was a dangerous engagement even with the caveat rendering the undertaking inoperative if such invasion should be provoked by persia during the fierce struggle of 1825-7, between Abbas Mirza and the Russian general Paskevitch, England refrained from supporting Persia, either with men or with money. And when prostrate Persia was in financial extremities because of the war indemnity which the Treaty of Turkmanchai imposed upon her, England took advantage of her needs, by purchasing the cancellation of the inconvenient obligation at the cheap cost of about three hundred thousand pounds it was the natural result of this transaction that english influence with the persian court should sensibly decline and it was not less natural that in conscious weakness persia should fall under the domination of russian influence futeh ali the old shah of persia died in eighteen thirty four and was succeeded by his grandson prince mohammed a young man who inherited much of the ambition of his gallant father abbas mirza his especial aspiration industriously stimulated by his russian advisers urged him to the enterprise of conquering the independent principality of herat on the western border of afghanistan herat was the only remnant of afghan territory that still remained to a member of the legitimate royal house Its ruler was Shah Kamran, son of that Mahmud Shah, who, after ousting his brother Shah Sujah from the throne of Kabul, had himself been driven from that elevation, and had retired to the minor principality of Herat. The young Shah of Persia was not destitute of justification for his designs on Herat. That this was so was frankly admitted by Mr Ellis the British envoy to his court, who wrote to his government that the Shah had fair claim to the sovereignty of Afghanistan as far as Gunzi, and that Camran's conduct in occupying part of the Persian province of Sistan had given the Shah, quote, a full justification for commencing hostilities against Herat. Unquote. The serious phase of the situation for England and India was that Russian influence was behind Persia in this hostile action against Herat. Mr. Ellis pointed out that in the then existing state of relations between Persia and Russia, the progress of the former in Afghanistan was tantamount to the advancement of the latter. But unfortunately there remained valid an article in the Treaty of 1814, to the effect that, in the case of war between the Afghans and the Persians, the English government should not interfere with either party, unless when called on by both to mediate. In vain did Ellis and his successor MacNeill remonstrate with the Persian monarch against the Herat expedition. An appeal to St. Petersburg on the part of Great Britain produced merely an evasive reply. How diplomatic disquietude had become intensified may be inferred from this that whereas in april eighteen thirty six ellis wrote of persia as a russian first parallel of attack against india lord auckland then governor-general of india directed meneal in the early part of eighteen thirty seven to urge the shah to abandon his enterprise on the ground that he the governor-general must view with umbrage and displeasure schemes of interference and conquest on our western frontier unquote. The Shah, unmoved by the representations of the British envoy, marched on Herat, and the siege was opened on November twenty third, eighteen thirty seven. Durand, a capable critic, declares that the strength of the place, the resolution of the besiegers, the skill of their Russian military advisers, and the gallantry of the besieged were alike objects of much exaggeration. The siege was from first to last thoroughly ill-conducted, and the defence, in reality not better managed, owed its éclat to Persian ignorance, timidity, and supineness. The advice of Pottinger, the gallant English officer who assisted the defence, was seldom asked, and still more seldom taken, and no one spoke more plainly of the conduct of both besieged and besiegers than did Pottinger himself." Menil effected nothing definite during a long stay in the Persian camp before Herat, the counteracting influence of the Russian envoy being too strong with the Shah, and the British representative, weary of continual slights, at length quitted the Persian camp, completely foiled. After six days' bombardment, the Persians and their Russian auxiliaries delivered an assault in force on June 23, 1838 it failed with heavy loss and the dispirited shah determined on raising the siege his resolution was quickened by the arrival of colonel stoddart in his camp with the information that a military force from bombay supported by ships of war had landed on the island of karak in the persian gulf and with the peremptory ultimatum to the shah that he must retire from herat at once Lord Palmerston, in ordering this diversion in the Gulf, had thought himself justified by circumstances in overriding the clear and precise terms of an article of a treaty to which England had on several occasions engaged to adhere. As for the Shah, he appears to have been relieved by the ultimatum. On the ninth September he mounted his horse and rode away from Herat. The siege had lasted nine and a half months. Today, half a century after Simonich, the Russian envoy, followed Mahomed Shah from battered but unconquered Herat, the city is still an Afghan place of arms. Shah Suja ul mulk a grandson of the illustrious Ahmed Shah, reigned in Afghanistan from 1803 till 1809. His youth had been full of trouble and vicissitude. He had been a wanderer, on the verge of starvation, a peddler and a bandit, who raised money by plundering caravans. His courage was lightly reputed, and it was, as a mere creature of circumstance, that he reached the throne. His reign was perturbed, and in 1809 he was a fugitive and an exile. Ranjit Singh, the Sikh ruler of the Punjab, defrauded him of the famous koh which is now the most precious of the crown jewels of england and plundered and imprisoned the fallen man shah Soojah at length escaped from lahore after further misfortunes he at length reached the british frontier station of ludiana and in eighteen sixteen became a pensioner of the east india company after the downfall of shah Soojah, afghanistan for many years was a prey to anarchy at length in eighteen twenty six dost mohammed succeeded in making himself supreme at kabul and this masterful man thenceforward held sway until his death in eighteen sixty three uninterruptedly save during the three years of the british occupation dost mohammed was neither kith nor kin to the legitimate dynasty which he displaced his father was an able statesman and gallant soldier. He left twenty-one sons, of whom Futeh Khan was the eldest, and Dost Mohammed one of the youngest. Futeh Khan was the warwick of Afghanistan, but the Afghan kingmaker had no barnet as the closing scene of his chequered life. Falling into hostile hands, he was blinded and scalped. Refusing to betray his brothers, he was leisurely cut to pieces by the order and in the presence of the monarch whom he had made. His young brother Dost Mohammed undertook to avenge his death. After years of varied fortunes, the Dost had worsted all his enemies, and in 1826 he became the ruler of Kabul. Throughout his long reign, Dost Mohammed was a strong and wise ruler. His youth had been neglected and dissolute. His education was defective, and he had been addicted to wine. Once seated on the throne, the reformation of our Henry V was not more thorough than was that of Dost Mohammed. He taught himself to read and write, studied the Koran, became scrupulously abstemious, assiduous in affairs, no longer truculent, but courteous. He is said to have made a public acknowledgment of the errors of his previous life and a firm profession of reformation, nor did his afterlife belie the pledges to which he committed himself. There was a fine, rugged honesty in his nature, and a streak of genuine chivalry. Notwithstanding the despite he suffered at our hands, he had a real regard for the English, and his loyalty to us was broken only by his armed support of the Sikhs in the Second Punjab War. The fallen Shah Soojah from his asylum in Ludhiana, was continually intriguing for his restoration. His schemes were long inoperative, and it was not until 1832 that certain arrangements were entered into between him and the Maharaja Runjit Singh. To an application on Shah Soojah's part for countenance and pecuniary aid, the Anglo-Indian government replied that to afford him assistance would be inconsistent with the policy of neutrality which the government had imposed on itself. But it unwisely contributed financially towards his undertaking, by granting him four months' pension in advance. Sixteen thousand rupees formed a scant war fund with which to attempt the recovery of a throne, but the Shah started on his errand in February 1833. After a successful contest with the Amirs of Sindhi, he marched on Kandahar, and besieged that fortress. Kandahar was in extremity when Dost Muhammad, hurrying from Kabul, relieved it, and joining forces with its defenders, he defeated and routed Shah Soojah, who fled precipitately, leaving behind him his artillery and camp equipage. During the Dost's absence in the south, Ranjit Singh's troops crossed the Atok, occupied the Afghan province of Peshawar, and drove the Afghans into the Khyber Pass. No subsequent efforts on Dost Mohammed's part availed to expel the Sikhs from Peshawar, and suspicions of British connivance with Ranjit Singh's successful aggression, he took into consideration the policy of fortifying himself by a counter-alliance with Persia. As for Shah Soojah. He had crept back to his refuge at Ludhiana. Lord Auckland succeeded Lord William Bentinck as Governor-General of India in March 1836. In reply to dost Mohammed's letter of congratulation, his lordship wrote, quote, You are aware that it is not the practice of the British government to interfere with the affairs of other independent states. Unquote an abstention which lord auckland was soon to violate he had brought from england the feeling of disquietude in regard to the designs of persia and russia which the communications of our envoy in persia had fostered in the home government but it would appear that he was wholly undecided what line of action to pursue swayed says durand by the vague apprehensions of a remote danger entertained by others rather than himself." He dispatched to Afghanistan Captain Burns on a nominally commercial mission, which in fact was one of political discovery, but without definite instructions. Burns, an able but rash and ambitious man, reached Kabul in September 1837, two months before the Persian army began the Siege of Herat. He had a strong prepossession in favour of the Dost, whose guest he had already been in 1832, and the policy he favoured was not the revival of the legitimate dynasty in the person of Shah Soojah, but the attachment of Dost Mohammed to British interests by strengthening his throne and affording him British countenance. Burns sanguinely believed that he had arrived at Kabul in the nick of time for an envoy from the shah of persia was already at Kandahar, bearing presents and assurances of support the dost made no concealment to burns of his approaches to persia and russia in despair of british good offices and being hungry for assistance from any source to meet the encroachments of the sikhs he professed himself ready to abandon his negotiations with the western powers if he were given reason to expect countenance and assistance at the hands of the Anglo-Indian government. Burns communicated to his government those friendly proposals, supporting them by his own strong representations, and meanwhile carried away by enthusiasm he exceeded his powers by making efforts to dissuade the Kandahar chiefs from the Persian alliance, and by offering to support them with money to enable them to make head against the offensive by which Persia would probably seek to revenge the rejection of her overtures. For this unauthorized excess of zeal, Burns was severely reprimanded by his government, and was directed to retract his offers to the Kandahar chiefs. The situation of Burns in relation to the Dost was presently complicated by the arrival at Kabul of a Russian officer claiming to be an envoy from the Tsar, whose credentials, however, were regarded as dubious, and who, if that circumstance has the least weight, was on his return to Russia utterly repudiated by Count Nesselrode. The Dost took small account of this emissary, continuing to assure Burns that he cared for no connection except with the English, and Burns professed to his government his fullest confidences in the sincerity of those declarations. But the tone of Lord Auckland's reply, Addressed to the Dost, was so dictatorial and supercilious as to indicate the writer's intention that it should give offence. It had that effect, and Burns' mission at once became hopeless. Yet, as a last resort, Dost Mohammed lowered his pride so far as to write to the Governor General, imploring him, quote, to remedy the grievances of the Afghans and afford them some little encouragement and power. Unquote. The pathetic representation had no effect. The Russian envoy, who was profuse in his promises of everything which the dost was most anxious to obtain, was received into favour, and treated with distinction, and on his return journey he effected a treaty with the Kandahar chiefs, which was presently ratified by the Russian minister at the Persian court. Burns, falling into discredit at Kabul, Quitted that place in August 1838. He had not been discreet, but it was not his indiscretion that brought about the failure of his mission. A nefarious transaction, which Kay denounces with the passion of a just indignation, connects itself with Burns's negotiations with the Dost. His official correspondence was unscrupulously mutilated and garbled in the published Blue Book, with deliberate purpose to deceive the British public. Burns had failed because, since he had quitted India for Kabul, Lord Auckland's policy had gradually altered. Lord Auckland had landed in India, in the character of a man of peace. That, so late as April 1837, he had no design of obstructing the existing situation in Afghanistan, is proved by his written statement of that date, that, quote, the British government had resolved decidedly to discourage the prosecution by the ex-king Shah soojah ul mulk so long as he may remain under our protection, of further schemes of hostility against the chiefs now in power in Kabul and Kandahar. Unquote. Yet in the following June he concluded a treaty which sent Shah Soojah to Kabul, escorted by British bayonets of this inconsistency no explanation presents itself it was a far cry from our frontier on the Sutlej to herat in the confines of central asia a distance of more than twelve hundred miles over some of the most arduous marching ground in the known world no doubt the anglo-indian government was justified in being somewhat concerned by the facts that a persian army backed by russian volunteers and Russian rubles was besieging Herat, and that Persian and Russian emissaries were at work in Afghanistan. Both phenomena were rather of the bogey character. How much so today shows when the Afghan frontier is still beyond Herat, and when a descendant of Dost Mohammed still sits in the Kabul Musnid. But neither England nor India scrupled to make the Karat counter-threat which arrested the siege of Herat, and the obvious policy, as regarded Afghanistan, was to watch the results of the intrigues which were on foot, to ignore them should they come to nothing, as was probable, to counteract them by familiar methods, if serious consequences should seem impending. Our alliance with Ranjit Singh was solid, and the quarrel between Dost Muhammad and him, concerning the Peshawar province, was notoriously easy of arrangement. On whose memory rests the dark shadow of responsibility for the first Afghan war? The late Lord Broughton, who, when Sir John Cam Hobhouse was President of the Board of Control from 1835 to 1841, declared before a House of Commons committee in 1851, quote, The Afghan war was done by myself, entirely without the privity of the Board of Directors, unquote. The meaning of that declaration, of course, was that it was the British government of the day which was responsible, acting through its member charged with the control of Indian affairs, and further that the directorate of the East India Company was accorded no voice in the matter. But this utterance was materially qualified by Sir J. C. Hobhouse's statement in the House of Commons in 1842 that his dispatch indicating the policy to be adopted and that written by lord auckland informing him that the expedition had already been undertaken had crossed each other on the way it would be tedious to detail how lord auckland under evil counsel gradually boxed the compass from peace to war the scheme of action embodied in the treaty which in the early summer of 1838 was concluded between the anglo-indian government Runjit Singh and Shah Soojah was that Shah Soojah, with a force officered from an Indian army and paid by British money, possessing also the goodwill and support of the Maharaja of the Punjab, should attempt the recovery of his throne without any stiffening of British bayonets at his back. Then it was urged, and the representation was indeed accepted, that the Shah would need the buttress afforded by English troops and that a couple of regiments only would suffice to afford this prestige. But Sir Harry Fane, the commander-in-chief, judiciously interposed his veto on the dispatch of a handful of British soldiers on so distant and hazardous an expedition. Finally, the Governor-General, committed already to a mistaken line of policy, and urged forward by those about him, took the unfortunate resolution to gather together an Anglo-Indian army and to send it, with the ill-omened Shah Sujah on its shoulders, into the unknown and distant wards of Afghanistan. This action determined on, it was in accordance with the Anglo-Indian fitness of things, that the Governor-General should promulgate a justificatory manifesto. Of this composition it is unnecessary to say more than to quote Duran's observation that, in it, the words justice and necessity were applied in a manner for which there is fortunately no precedent in the English language. Unquote. And Sir Henry Edwards' not less trenchant comment was that, quote, The views and conduct of Dost Mohammed were misrepresented with a hardihood which a Russian statesman might have envied. Unquote. All men whose experience gave weight to their words opposed this quote, preposterous enterprise. Unquote. Mr. Elphinstone, who had been the head of a mission to Kabul thirty years earlier, held that, If an army was sent up the passes, and if we could feed it, no doubt we might take Kabul and set up Shah Soojah, but it was hopeless to maintain him in a poor, cold, strong, and remote country among so turbulent a people. Lord William Bentinck, Lord Auckland's predecessor, denounced the project as an act of incredible folly. Marquess Wellesley regarded, quote, this wild expedition into a distant region of rocks and deserts, of sands and ice and snow, unquote, as an act of infatuation. The Duke of Wellington pronounced with prophetic sagacity that the consequence of once crossing the Indus to settle a government in Afghanistan would be a perennial march into that country. End of chapter 1